Welcome to MindReadings Experts in Conversation podcast series. This project explores the patient experience through the prism of literature and personal narrative to inform self-care, patient-centered care and practice, animated by the question of whether doctors and patients speak the same language and how we can use narrative to bridge the evident gaps. MindReading began as a collaboration between UCD Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and the Diseases of Modern Life Project and the University of Birmingham, expanding to include colleagues across the UK and Ireland, most notably the UCD School of English Drama and Film. Our intended activities comprise a series of explorations around the central theme of literature and mental health and function as independent events, but brought together by their intent to explore the best ways of drawing on the insights of historical and literary research and contemporary medical practice in the field of mental health. The podcast series, Experts in Conversation, brings together some of the key themes of the 2020 conference, which we have to postpone, and is brought to you by the RCPI Archive. And this episode is brought to you by the School of Agriculture and Food, Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Committee, with particular thanks to Frank Monaghan for making it possible. Today's episode is entitled Rewriting the Stories of Disability, and I'm joined by Deirdre O'Connor, Erwin Gill, Maria Stewart, and Elizabeth Barrett. So our first guest on today's episode, Rewriting the Stories of Disability, is Deirdre O'Connor. Deirdre is a lecturer in resource economics at the School of Agriculture and Food Science in UCD. She has a strong interest in issues of equality, diversity, and inclusion, and is involved in a number of related committees and initiatives within UCD. Deirdre was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis approximately 13 years ago, and so the issue of invisible disability is of particular interest to her. Deirdre, welcome. Thanks so much for the opportunity to take part in this. I think it's a great initiative, as are the, all the associated activities. And I'm, I'm, I think we were saying already, I'm really taken with the, uh, the pause for a poem series. I think they really do provide it just a lovely element of, of calm and something soothing in, in your day. So in kind of thinking about my, my own contribution to this uh, discussion and what that might be, uh, I went back to an event that actually you and I, Claire, were involved in last year, which was a podcast we did with UCD and indeed the DI unit and Molly, the, uh, the Museum of Literature in Ireland, um, on the theme of invisible disabilities uh, and really what the, the lived experience of having an invisible disability was like. And again, you know, how literature and cultural artefacts, I suppose, helped us make sense uh, of all that. But also, I suppose, more kind of practical issues on what was useful for, for colleagues and those who support people with invisible disabilities, what was useful for, for them to, to know. And obviously, because, you know, we could only have a, a small panel um, of people on for the, the broadcast. We also just invited staff to, to make kind of sounds very formal, but written submissions on an anonymous basis just to, to write really or to share their experience of, of living with an, an invisible disability. And we got a lot of kind of interesting contributions and responses from that. And then subsequently, I myself got a lot of, of just comments made to me and, and correspondence just privately, I think, uh, to myself. So, you know, I think a lot of, of what I want to talk about today is, is just based on, on those insights, really. But also, I'm really aware that, you know, this is a personal contribution and, and a personal reflection as well. So I just want to kind of acknowledge my own circumstances and my own position, I think, in, in, in this discussion as well. So, you know, as you said, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis around 13 years ago. And obviously, I fully acknowledge it's, it's a serious condition. It's a serious neurological disease. But I'm also aware, you know, there's a lot of factors that put me, I think, in a relatively privileged position in, in all of this. I'm very lucky in that I have very good access to really good medical treatment and medical care. Um, I'm on current treatment, which is, is working very well. And um, so I have specifically, I have um, relapsing and remitting 
MS, which means I have periods of time where my symptoms don't really impair me very much. To my knowledge, I fairly secure employment in UCD, at least to the best of my knowledge. But, you know, I think that is very, very important because it does kind of relieve you, I suppose, of a lot of, you know, anxieties around finance and, and job security and so on. And I think as well, like I was diagnosed quite quite late in life. I was in my, my mid-40s, which I think is, is quite unusual. So I think, you know, the, the die had already been cast in, in relation to a lot of big life decisions. I was already married, I was already mortgaged, uh, and, you know, and I have my daughter and so on. So, you know, I think that's, that's a, a particular set of circumstances, I think, that does impinge, I think, on how all this impacts. So I suppose my own contribution has to be coloured by by all of, of that. And as I've said, you know, I think it's relatively speaking, uh, it's a fairly privileged uh, position. And, and also I think there's an element of luck in the sense that, you know, the course of, of my disease so far at least, you know, hasn't been terribly dramatic or terribly negative. But we'll come back to that in, in a minute. You know, I, I think it's important to recognise that um, a lot of people have very different, even with, even with the same disease, have very, very dissimilar experiences. Some of them a lot more more negative and, you know, living with a very different set of, of circumstances. So I just want to return really to, to some of the, the themes that our colleagues in, in UCD brought up when we, we sought their views on specifically around uh, invisible disability and one theme that just came up again and again is, again, it's in an employment context, but I think it applies more generally, uh, just the whole issue of disclosure and the kind of the, the sensitivity, I suppose, and the delicate nature um, of, of that. So many people I spoke to use the same analogy of, it, of feeling like you were stepping off a cliff, really, really dramatic. And, you know, again, we come back to kind of language and narratives uh, subsequently, but you know, just that fear of being kind of stigmatised or the fear of being kind of written off or sidelined, you know, of just not being seen, not being heard, all, all of that. But actually, I should say, I think at this point that, you know, my own experience of, of disclosure uh, in UCD was actually really positive with my colleagues and my head of school, actually, in, in particular, you know, and it was really very much around um, what I felt I needed in terms of support and kind of recognising that, you know, we were in this for the long haul, you know, that this is a chronic lifelong condition. So what I might need now might be very different to what I might need in, in the future. You know, so all that was was really helpful. But having said that, I only disclosed it about three years ago, having been diagnosed with 13 years ago. Now, there's probably a whole other podcast on why that was the case, but it's, I think, a complicated set of, of issues. But I suppose as luck would have it, if, if you could put it that way, you know, having had quite kind of a stable condition for years and years, I think about two months after I did all this disclosure, I got a really, really nasty flare-up, which put me in hospital for a period of time and put me out of work for about two months or, or three months. You know, so on reflection, there was a real kind of a comfort and, and peace of mind arising from the fact that I'd, I'd had those conversations and, and that they went so, so well. And I suppose just kind of linked to that uh, experience of, of having a serious relapse that just seemed to come out of, out of nowhere. And again, just based on, on kind of conversations and communications I've had with uh, colleagues in, in UCD, you know, 
that whole issue of kind of living with uncertainty, I think, and, and unpredictability, I think, is a really common theme when, when we talk to our colleagues. And again, it, you know, it emerged time and time again that, you know, people said it's like this kind of sword of Damocles hanging over you. And, you know, also, I think it's it's quite a, an insidious thing, that, that kind of level of unpredictability or uncertainty. Because I think it really does kind of seep into, you know, the way you engage in things and your ability to kind of fully engage in in, in all kinds of things. Because, you know, in the back of your mind, there's always this idea, well, you know, it could all go horribly wrong. <laughs> That's a very kind of a common theme. But it's interesting, uh, again, just talking to um, a particular friend who has... MS and they're I think a lot more restricted uh, with it than, than than I am but they were just saying recently like in in the current kind of COVID world like we're all grappling much more with uncertainty and unpredictability and that kind of sort of damocles and they were saying you know they feel like saying to some of their non-disabled friends sometimes well you know welcome to my world you know this is what we live with all the time so you know that's, that's I think just an additional uh, insight I suppose just returning to to that issue of of disclosure and and some of the conversations we've had uh, around that a lot of people talk about you know the fact that once you disclose you kind of become public property to, to an extent and that often means, you know, a lot of unsolicited advice and commentary. And while it's not always very well informed, I'm pretty sure it's always well meant. You know? But, you know, I think everybody, almost everybody with an invisible disability can relate to the experience of being told, well, you don't look sick, you know, or you look grand. This being Ireland, you know, you're grand. You look grand, you know. And I suppose on a good day, it's nice to be told <laughs> you look grand. But I think on a bad day, you know, I think you can make you feel very kind of overlooked or kind of uh, dismissed. And again, in related to that, I suppose it probably sounds like a, bit of a paradox, but a lot of people have said to me that, you know, when you do disclose and you do become more public about it, it's actually quite a lonely process, you know, in, in that, you know, a lot of people, I know it's a, a cliche, but they use this kind of, you know, iceberg analogy that, you know, what you see with an invisible disability is probably 10% of what's, of what's there. You know, and I think just that experience, I suppose, of what you see not being what you get and so on, it, it can be, I think, quite a, a lonely position on a lot of people I've talked to who experience chronic conditions and particularly those who live with chronic pain said it is really, really difficult to communicate just what it is like live in, in that body you know that's I, I found that quite poignant actually I said in, in a lot of people who contacted me so turning I suppose to one of the the, the other themes I think that emerges all the time is this whole idea of of narratives and how invisible disabilities in particular I suppose are kind of seen and and heard and in in the MS community I just maybe talk a little bit about people who might find kind of interesting and, and, and useful to, to link in with. I follow quite a lot of the, the, the contributions from a, a, he's an American man who lives in Ireland, Travis Gleason, who writes a lot about uh, MS and I think articulates this whole idea of narrative very well. So, you know, he talks about, you know, the warrior narrative and the sufferer narrative, the superhero narrative. And I suppose specifically the way 
those narratives are kind of thrust upon you rather than you define them for for yourself. And he has a, a really nice analogy of, you know, it's like it's as if you got dressed in a, a wardrobe of clothes that you didn't pick out for yourself. You know, so you're walking around in, in somebody else's clothes uh, almost. You know, again, I suppose it's not an argument, I suppose, or a discussion over which narrative is, is more appropriate, but it's really just that it's it's your own choosing, I, I think, is, is the issue. As I'm saying this, I am aware that, you know, a lot of people frame their their disability and their coping with their disability in terms of a battle or a fight or whatever, and I absolutely support that if that's what they, they choose to do, but I suppose it's really just the question that you should get to choose your own narrative, and that would be that would be nice. I suppose on the upside, if we were to to, to look at, at the positives for for a few minutes, one of the really positive things about kind of you know engaging in in EPI work related to to disabilities and invisible disabilities is really just that it gives you the the opportunity to kind of interact with those like minded people really in in a whole range of of other domains and. Just in relation to that, I'm sure people on, on this call have probably come across uh, Mary Doherty, who treats as the autistic doctor, and she's very involved in, in a lot of kind of awareness raising work and advocacy work on specifically on autism and more specifically on autistic doctors uh, within the medical profession. And I've had just the opportunity to, to correspond with her quite a bit recently, which, which I've really um, enjoyed. So I thought it was kind of interesting that, that she's quite keen that her autism is, fr- is framed as an invisible disability because, as we know, the whole 10 podcasts, I suspect, in, in the whole issue of, you know, how you frame neurodiversity or neurodivergence as a disability and that that's the fact that that's quite a contentious issue. But I, I thought it was interesting that I was in correspondence with her about this. Um, and that she's pretty adamant that it, it should be framed as, as as a disability, because I think that you know it links to the the other side of the disability coin, if you like, which is you know ableism and the fact that we are all trying to operate in what is essentially an ableist world. A lot of people are, in, I suppose, encountering barriers of all types, and they appear to be navigating them quite successfully, but. You know, very often that's coming at, a, I think, a huge cost to people's well-being and their, their quality of, of life. And I think just sticking with, with Mary's work, um, she's also some very interesting things to say about, about narratives and, and disability, and particularly the whole kind of tragedy narratives that's, that's very much to the fore. Obviously, what she's saying is, you know, nobody can deny that autistic people face significant challenges in, in an ableist world. But we really need to kind of recognise strengths and positive qualities that that people are are bringing. Um, And I think that also links to just the the whole kind of language around disability and the debate around language around disability, which I have to say I'm still trying to get my head around. But I suppose even the, 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 the preference now for talking about autistic or disabled people rather than, you know, people with autism or with a disability and the idea that it's identity first, I think. And you know, even around the area of neurodivergent versus neurodiversity and, and, and those kinds of, of, of things. And you know, I, as I said, I'm still getting my head around a lot of that language, but it has also just made me think even about 
you know, the language we use in, in the workplace. And, and specifically when we talk about things like reasonable accommodation, you know, reasonable from whose perspective? And I often think, and I've always thought actually, that the word accommodation just sounds a bit kind of grudging. <laughs> you got to have to do, you know, or, or maybe I'm, I'm kind of overthinking it. And I suppose that brings me back, I think, to the idea that if you are, I think, in a, in a certain position of privilege, you know, you do have the luxury of, of focusing your thinking on this type of discussion around kind of language and identity and so on, rather than much more kind of fundamental problems that, that people face in disability of simply kind of access to services and precarious work and financial precariousness, which I'm aware now probably brings me right back to where I started. <laughs> so for that reason, I might just leave my immediate contribution there and, you know, listen to what others have to say and come back in subsequently. That's brilliant, Deirdre. Thank you so much. A huge amount to pick up on there. Such interesting and, and rich, a rich contribution. Thank you so much. Our second guest on this episode, Rewriting the Stories of Disability, is Dr. Erwin Gill. Erwin is a consultant paediatrician working in disability and rehabilitation and clinical lecturer assistant professor in the School of Medicine at University College Dublin. His areas of clinical practice and research interest include physical disability, rehabilitation after acquired brain injury, spina bifida, interdisciplinary care, patient-focused outcome measures, and access to disability and rehabilitation services for children. Erwin, welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, hard to know where, where to start with, with all the things that were, were brought up there by, by, by Deirdre. Very, very rich series of things. I wanted to pick up, I suppose, in particular on the the issue she discussed in related to language. Sometimes in medicine, the language we use isn't always as geared towards narrative as it could be, um, and that can create a tension sometimes. I think we're taught in college and while we're in training to address clinical scenarios primarily by finding a, a, a diagnosis. Um, and that's not to say that there's no mention of uh, a biopsychosocial model of, of illness uh, or, or of health in medical training. And, and it's more prevalent in some specialties than in, than, than in others. But those kind of complexities don't tend to fit very well into the way that we have to be examined in kind of a five option MCQ kind of system. Uh, there's not a lot of room for this. Um, and sometimes that just means it gets shunted to the side and that we don't really learn about these things until we're a little bit further down the road. Where that's interesting from my perspective as a, as a disability specialist is that for, for disability and, and probably for, for everything, um, a, a diagnosis is a completely insufficient description of the person to whom it applies. I suppose a diagnosis, I would argue, is not necessarily the disability itself, or at least not the same disability. And, and, and as Deirdre mentioned, there are lots of people who will argue that autism isn't a disabling condition, and there are people who will argue that it is. And I would agree with Deirdre that that's for each individual to determine for, for, for themselves, rather than for us to decide uh, by creating a list of things that are and, and are not disabling. Where the tension comes working within the disability system is that a, a system that focuses primarily speaking on diagnosis rather than on description or narrative or function in terms of getting access to supports or getting access to help is always going to generate a certain amount of tension um, between, I suppose, the way that we as specialists would like to play the game by describing and helping our patients and the way that we're forced to play the game to get them what they, they sometimes need from a system that isn't always set up to hear the stories, I suppose. The frequent example that I come across is, is whether or not it's correct that a child in whom a whole load of people have identified functional difficulties and, and, and active everyday 
real world problems? Is it right that that child can't get help because they either don't have any specific diagnosis yet or because they don't have the right diagnosis? I would argue that their problems are what they are regardless and their diagnosis may not meaningfully change their experience of their disability. But nonetheless, unfortunately, sometimes in a diagnostically focused system, that's where we find ourselves having to play the game. So there's, there's a tension here, I suppose, between how we sometimes have to practice medicine and, and how, uh, we, how, we, how we would like to. And I suppose because labels and diagnoses are, are insufficient, language and disability has become extremely important. And I think there's, there's a very recent example of this, I suppose. You, you can see the reaction that happened when uh, Minister Joseph Madigan referred to children without disabilities as, as quote-unquote normal children uh, earlier in the year, which is, uh, I suppose, a very unfortunate gaffe. And I, I don't think necessarily reflects on her being a, 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 a terrible, awful person. But I think it rankled with so many people because those of us working in the system and people living with disability would simply just never do that. Uh, it would just simply never happen. And it's not that use of inappropriate words are, you know, it's not about who can be the most woke or or about, about you know, being politically correct. But it's because these words um, for people who are living with disability are extremely revealing of, of conscious or unconscious constructs of disability in, in, in society. And I, I, I uh, like to start when teaching disability to junior doctors or, or, or medical students by asking them um, about the issue that Deirdre closed with, in fact, is about whether or not you would use person first or condition first language. So uh, I suppose full disclosure, I, I tend to say to families that I'm, I mean, I tend to talk about children with disabilities rather than, than disabled children. Um, the reason I do that is that in my experience, I find parents who have not been living with disability for a long time, they think correctly or incorrectly that the term disabled child is actually offensive or a slur and that that is broadly accepted as correct. That's calling someone disabled is an insult of some sort. And I think it's people who are perhaps later or further along down the road uh, of their journey with disability who sometimes have, a, have, a, have different approaches. And there are still, you know, I don't think there's a correct or incorrect attitude to that, but there are differences of opinion. But in asking medical students or doctors, you know, child with disability versus a disabled child, do you think one of those is wrong? And very frequently, they will tell me that disabled child is wrong. Uh, it's an incorrect thing to say. And if I sort of said, well, what if I was to tell you that lots of disability advocates would say that if you say that a child with a disability, that that internalizes the disability to that child, that it is theirs, integral to them, and it's no one else's fault, versus saying that a child is disabled implies that they are disabled not only by illness, but by circumstance and by society and by our failure to uh, accommodate, to use that, that, that awful word, um, they're, they're the difficulties that they've got. Some people prefer person-first language. The, the autism, autistic community are, are extremely clear on that at the moment, that autistic person is most people's preference. But very interestingly, at a recent presentation I, I participated in, we had one specialist who said that their families preferred to talk about child with a disability. Others preferred to talk about disabled children. And another group felt the word disabled should be banned and was entirely offensive. Um, and then adult disability advocates will frequently say that the, the ideas of uh, special needs or uh, disability and these kind of things are, you know, they find it offensive and people should just get over the idea that the word disability is something that, that ought not be said. So a, a broad variety of different constructs. But I suppose the idea is that the words are deeply revealing um, about the, I suppose, what underpins our, our attitudes to disability. And to get away from labels and into stories, um, and I suppose this relates to invisible disability as well, in terms of getting past diagnosis and label and terminology, one of the most 
revealing real world experiences I ever had in understanding disability was, was early in my training in Australia. Um, I was, I'd not even actually started in the hospital I was working in in Sydney when they said that, that there's a camp they run every year for children and teenagers with acquired brain injury where they go off for two days uh, into this uh, idyllic New South Wales lakeside um, thing and go um, canoeing and rock climbing and doing all this incredible stuff. Um, and uh, they need medical cover in case somebody has a, a seizure or has a fall or an accident or whatever. So there has to be a doctor there. So I hadn't been inside the door of the hospital yet, but they said, you, off you go. You're doing this. This is your induction. Anyway, it was great. Uh, it was it was a was thing. But I, I learned more about the reality of the lived experiences of the invisible disability for acquired brain injury in those two days than I think I have before uh, or since the interesting thing was that, first of all, it was mostly invisible. There were very few children there who had any obviously apparent physical disability. But the real lived experience for them was in the the managing of, of everyday scenarios that would just never come across in a medical report or a medical letter or any kind of a medical construct of disability at all. Um, it's the sort of failure to, to, to read um, complex social cues or difficulty managing uh, tempers. And I suppose more than anything else, it's the idea that these children, before they had their injuries and, and after, look more or less the same as they ever did before. Society's expectations of them hasn't changed at all. And unfortunately, they their experience can be that they repeatedly fail to live, live up to other people's expectations of them, which has an enormously damaging effect for them as well. And I suppose spending two days with them in that scenario was incredibly revealing to try and understand the kind of stories that people with invisible disability have. And one of the reasons why I suppose I enjoy working in rehabilitation is because it sort of, I suppose, raises an eyebrow at the medical model of illness and health. It doesn't ignore it completely. Um, there's a lot of very complex medical management within uh, rehabilitation and disability, but it accepts that having the diagnosis doesn't mean that you have the answer um, and that there's a lot more to the lived experiences and stories of people with those disabilities before and the, before you, you can fully understand them. The tricky thing, I suppose, with words and labels is that they, they tend to emphasize division, uh, I suppose, and othering uh, of people with, with disabilities in a way that stories don't and narratives don't. If we think about what disability actually is, as we mentioned earlier, it's not just a, a medical diagnosis or, or, or a label, but it's, a, it's the interaction between difficulties with body structure and function, so something internal not working as, as you might like it to, allied with problems with activity and participation, so not being able to do the things that you yourself have chosen are important and all of that coming in the context of your environment and your own preferences. And I suppose framing disability in that way as being something beyond a label or, or just a diagnosis means that that experiencing disability is not something that only disabled, quote unquote, people can experience, but in fact, it's something that anyone can experience, that anybody can experience disability if they have a barrier to activity and participation that's caused by some problem in, in, in their body. And that can happen transiently. I think COVID has taught an awful lot of people that, um, that disability is not just something that exists for other people. And that's a very powerful thing because it means that di if disability is not just a thing for a different category of people, it means that disability services are not just a thing for a different category of people and suddenly disability is everyone's business. It reframes disability completely as not some se separate category. It deletes othering as a, as a thing that should even exist. And crucially, and I think this is really important with the current stories that are going on um, in relation to, to children with disability in particular, it completely reframes the role of the state and the assistance that we owe people with disabilities, not as extra help, but as the minimum duty that 
people are owed in participating in their own lives on their own terms based on their own preferences. And from, from my perspective, our challenge as people working within a medical model that has been perhaps slow to adapt to this kind of model of, of health, I think the, the WHO's publication of the the ICFCY framework in 2007 was, was a, a huge step forward, but we've still been slow to get there. Our, our challenge is to try and hear these stories, not try to reduce them simply into a diagnosis or into a series of scores with which we are comfortable with and which will fit into a letter, but to hear the stories and try to grow the system to make room for them rather than trying to reduce the stories into something that we are more familiar with. Um, and I might leave it there for now. That was super, Erwin. Thank you so much. And again, typing away furiously here, making making notes. That's a, a really useful place to to leave it. And again, picks up on on so many of the kind of the central questions that we've been that we've been talking about and that that that, that Deirdre raised. So thank you. That was that was really great. But I'm going to move on to um, Dr. Maria Stewart. Our final speaker for this episode, re rewriting the stories of disabilities, is Dr. Maria Stewart, lecturer in American literature and crime fiction in the School of English Drama and Film at UCD. Maria's recent research is in disfluency studies, an interdisciplinary field that explores representations of stammering across cultural forms, drawing on literary and cultural studies, disability studies, politics and philosophy. She's the principal investigator for the Welcome funded project Metaphoric Stammers and Embodied Speakers, connecting clinical, cultural and creative practice in the area of disfluent speech, a project that approaches stammering not as a disorder seeking a cure, but as a form of communication that challenges normative concepts of speech, the pathologizing of vocal difference and the cultural narratives that sustain these. Maria is co-editor with Daniel Martin of a special issue of the Journal of Interdisciplinary Voice Studies on Disfluency, March 2021. Welcome, Maria. Thanks, Claire. Thanks, thanks very much for the opportunity um, to be here today and to be discussing this um, with the other people on the panel. I've really enjoyed the previous contributions by Deirdre and by Erwin. I wanted to talk a bit about the project, Metaphoric Stammers and Embodied Speakers, and maybe try and give a sense of the people that are involved in it. And I think the kinds of questions we've been asking each other over the last year or so. The project began as a conference at uh, UCD, and the aim was to try and bring together people with a real investment in uh, stammering, you know, to whom it really mattered, but that were coming from different uh, uh, perspectives. And three strands emerged from that. Um, the clinical strand, so the group of speech and language uh, uh, therapists that are involved, working with stammering in terms of children, adolescents and adults. And those of us then in the humanities who were really interested in representations of stammering in literature and film and television, and also people that were quite interested in the kind of political and economic readings of, uh, of, of, of uh, disabled speakers. And then finally, finally, but definitely not least, because it's been one of the most dynamic strands, has been the creative strand. So just working with writers and artists and seeing the way in which they really use their creative art as a way of exploring their own experience of uh, stammering. But I thought for today that I try to look at the project specifically through the lens of narrative um, and just think about the ways in which the project converges on narrative. Um, and the possibilities of narrative from very different perspectives. In terms of clinical work, uh, narrative practice is relatively recent within speech and language ther 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 therapy. And it's a form of practice that a lot of our colleagues, therapy practice that several of the clinicians are, are drawing on within the group. Um, I'm thinking here of the work of uh, Margaret Leahy, Mary, Mary O'Dwyer and Fiona Ryan. 
But I think more broadly, narrative therapy is, has also been drawn upon by other uh, clinicians within the group. It, it starts very much from the premise that the clinical encounter is a collaborative thing. That's really important for all of the therapists. So they're letting go of their position as an expert. They're absolutely not positioning themselves as an expert. And the expertise is acknowledged as related to the speaker, to the person who has a stammer. So it's very much a client-centered type of approach. We don't use the word uh, patient within uh, therapeutic treat, uh, treatment for stammering because that's obviously something that we're that we would not be happy with. This isn't a, a illness as 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 such. Narrative therapy, I think, then allows or enables therapists to highlight the kinds of uh, dominant uh, narratives that are shaping a stammerer's sense of themselves. So the kinds of culture narratives that are, are recycling very negative and disabling images of uh, stammering. And out of that then can come a focus on moments in a person's life where they've really challenged or resisted those images of stammering. So moments in a life where someone with a stammer has chosen to speak in public, has wanted to, has gone ahead and has communicated really strongly regardless of fluency. So not in spite of fluency, but regardless of that. And so a narrative practice, then the idea would be to use those moments to build another type of narrative, um, a narrative that's open to ideas of speech that allow for difference and diversity. And that idea of difference and diversity, um, I know people have referred to neurodiversity as well. That's, that's feeding into the practice of some of the conditions in the group, like Sam Simpson and Chris uh, Chris uh, Constantino. I think fundamentally here to say that for all the clinicians in the group, fluency is not the aim of therapy. That's really important. And the aim of therapy is a much broader look at a person's relationship with their own voice and the way that cultural assumptions can impinge on that. And it very much takes its cue from the individual person. How do they see their stammer? How do they want to approach it? So, again, drawing on what colleagues have said in clinical practice, ideas of working with your block, with techniques for speech therapy, that can be part of the package if particular people want it. Another recent way of working with it, and I was thinking of what uh, Deirdre said, is um, avoidance reduction therapy. And uh, Jonathan Link, Link, Linklater in the group um, works very much with clients to work on reducing avoidance because um, it really restricts your experience and your quality of life. And um, so that idea maybe of letting go of um, covert uh, stammering and letting it be more public. So acts of disclosure, not just in what you say about yourself, but how you actually allow yourself to speak. Um, but all of these are choices. They're not clinical imperatives. So that's what I've learned from the therapists, the clinicians in the group that the focus is really on choice and agency. Um, now, that obviously is difficult for colleagues who are working with children. You know, obviously, ideas of agency and choice. You're necessarily also working with pet parents who may have real anxiety and real expectations around their children and what they feel would be best for, for that child. You know, that's a complex 
uh, landscape and colleagues are working within that. But they're very much carving as much space as they can for the autonomy of the child. One colleague talks about sending out in, in invitations to therapy because an invitation implies choice. You know, so just those ways of trying to work, to work within the realities. In terms maybe then of where the humanities can come in here, um, I think that as therapists are recognizing more and more the ways that cultural narratives outside the clinical setting are impacting on the work that they do, I think that the kind of work we do in the humanities, the analysis that we do of how narratives uh, represent stammering can be really useful. It can be a way, I think, of, of gaining greater control over the messages that are out there. So the kind of work that we would do would be um, trying to identify what cultural narratives are saying about stammering. So how stammering is being represented through fiction, through television, through literature. How, how those messages are being conveyed. So how narratives work. And I think that's very much where people who work in literary scholarship you know, can come in. What are the techniques? Um, also film studies. What are the strategies that are used to affect people, not just to communicate, but to really affect them? And then leading on from that, the ways in which we can then challenge and question um, narratives that privilege flu fluency over everything else. So that would be the um, narratives that really focus on fluency at the expense of other forms of communication. Can't talk to people yet about what they see on television about uh, stammering, but I, I'm probably going to suggest that there's a whole uh, spectrum of images, and um, most of them not very positive. So sometimes stammering is used as a sign of neurosis, of chronic anxiety, of a kind of sense of somebody who fundamentally doesn't know who they are, they're fundamentally uncertain about who they are or what they want to say. You know, a lot of people say they feel that if they stammer, people think they don't know what they want to say, they don't know their field, they don't have authority. Um, right up to the stammerer as a figure of, of humour. I mean, you've got, you know, heard of commas. As someone who works in, in crime fiction, I'm particularly interested in the use of the stammer in, in crime fiction. It's often used as a sign of guilt, really, you know, that it can be the stammer that erupts, out of, you know, that has been buried or oppressed and that erupts in a crime uh, narrative can often be the sign of the unstable or even psychotic type of character who's lurking under the kind of normal exterior. Um, so it, it's a bit of a plot, a plot spoiler. So I suppose I'm interested in the kind of cultural work done crime fiction is very popular. I'm interested in lots of forms of uh, disability within crime fiction, but particularly the use of sort of the stammering voice to almost signal something you should be suspicious of. Other people in the group, I'm thinking of Chris Eagle's work, and uh, Daniel Martin. They look at the history of speech and language ther ther therapy and how clinical developments from the 18th, 19th century on, how they're represented within literature. Rochea Rodness in the group um, is an emerging scholar, works a lot on very contemporary ideas of stammering. So she's looked at media responses to Joe Biden's stammer. And she's, uh, she's got a really interesting essay on Joe Biden's stammer, Amanda Gorman's poem at his, his uh, inauguration, and the hit TV series uh, Bridgerton. 
for the use of the stammer in Bridgerton. So it's, it's a really good essay on sort of the contemporary changes in how a stammer is viewed. And I think the debates around Biden's stammer and authority, you know, are really, really uh, interesting. And Joshua Saint-Pierre works a lot in disability studies, and he's really good at focusing on high economic uh, narratives that treat time as a commodity, then position disabled speakers as time wasters. So, so Josh really looks at how the economy that we live in, the capitalist or neoliberal economy, can really disable the stammering speaker. There's a sense that they're wasting time. They're not efficient. They're not efficient modes of production. So there's a, there's a lot of different ways the work's being done, but I suppose one really familiar narrative, and again, goes back to what Deirdre was saying about sort of the tenacious types of narratives around disability within stammering, it's the narrative of overcoming. We seem to have a real cultural appetite for inspiring stories about curing, about curing your stammer. And probably the King's Speech is the most popular, most recent example of that. But I think what some of us would argue would be that although that film has often been read as a triumph story, a narrative of overcoming an impediment, if you read it closely or watch it closely, it's actually a more complex story. At the very end, um, George VI, speech therapist, after the radio broadcast, it is supposedly a triumph. It tells him that he stammered on certain words. And George VI in his own script, it was scripted by, by a scriptwriter with a stammer, uh, David, David S. Eidler. He says, I had to throw them in, the stammers in, to let them know it was me. So there's a sense of holding on to the stammer, claiming it as an integral part of who, of who you are. And if you even listen to the soundscape of the, the film, the stammer's always there, just underneath the surface. I think what we're trying to do then in the in the cultural strand in the humanities is to read against narratives of overcoming or narratives that privilege normal speech and to try and make visible or make heard and narratives that offer different ideas, ideas of diversity and, and uh, difference. And I think most of all, narratives that allow for the possibility of communication and expression regardless of fluency. And then just to say a few things just quickly about the creative strand. It's been particularly interesting because a lot of the writers and the artists in the group are really keen to show how their experience of stammering has been generative. It's given them an insight, for example, for the writers into how language works. So their experience of dealing with impediment gives them a sense of the materiality of language. You know, not just the challenge of language, but its possibilities, all that you can do with it. And, and that's the same for artists in other forms of communication. Um, uh, Jordan Scott is a Canadian poet whose collection blurt. It's a great, it's a great word, blurt. It focuses on his stammer and the really the embodied experience of stammering. Again, Ed, Deirdre was talking about the idea of finding a way of communicating, being in that body. And Jordan is very much trying to, not trying, he does really show how the stammer feels, you know, in your mouth, on your tongue, in your thorax. Um, and a really, um, and also how its unpredictability can change the rhythms of speech in really interesting ways. And I think part of the power of his work is actually hearing him read it. 
He's got a lot of readings on YouTube. So his disfluency animates what he's saying. He's also written a children's book published this year, 2020, called I Talk Like a River. And it's based on his childhood experience of having a stammer and something his father said to him. And he, he said that he described his son's voice, Jordan's voice, as like a river, talking about the way in which it was always negotiating obstacles like the pebbles, the stones in its path. And this book is really about the importance of that metaphor. Erwin talked about re reframing things, rethinking things. And I think the power of the metaphor for Jordan was it gave him a completely different way of thinking about his stammer. Jerome Ellis is a musician and a composer, and he explores his use of stammering within ideas of musical time. And also in relation to the position of African-American speakers within a historical time. So he looks very much at the idea of the particular position of the black speaker, particularly within contemporary America in um, history and in contemporary time. He has very much back to this idea of access to time, time to speak. And he contributed to um, an episode of This American Life podcast in which he used a recording of himself speaking at a public event with a stammer. So part of the recording is the long break, the silence, and he invites people into that moment, into that time and space of the stutter. It's a really very powerful piece. So he's inviting people in to share that time and space with them, that time and space that allows for other kinds of communication. I suppose finally then I'll wrap up with um, Connor, Con Connor Foran's work. Connor is a graphic uh, artist and he has created his own font to give a visual expression of uh, disfluency. He uses different types of font to show the very individual ways of uh, stammering. So this is another thing about stammering and there's a lot that's shared in the stammering community, but people do stammer in very individual ways. So Connor uses an elongated letter for a block that's like a, a continual sound, like an S that continues. He uses that repetition, repeated letter for a repetitive block. And then in the midst of his, of his type, of his font, he uses spaces for the complete block, for the silence of the complete block. And he really makes this fluency a thing of beauty. You know, he's externalized it in a way I think that is a great resource for those who stammer, who've always been presented with an idea of their speech as broken or as an impediment. So that's kind of who we are at the moment and what we're doing. So we've moved online and we're sort of keeping up the uh, conversations across disciplines and um, informing each other and challenging each other in different ways. There's a lot more I'd like to say in the group, particularly in relation to what Deirdre or Erwin said, but I'll stop and pass back. Thank you. One of the things that I was struck by across the, the presentations today was the tension between the particular, the individual and the general. And I think one of the main areas of interest that we're discussing in this podcast series is how do you balance that, particularly when we're talking about enhancing clinical encounters and enhancing clinical practice? How in the context of medical education, in the context of interdisciplinary work, in the context of employment, how do you take the richness of those individual stories and try not to lose it, but allow for something that can be generalized 
So that's, I think, the place I'd really like to start. And I might start with Erwin, if that's okay. I think that's a really, a really interesting question. Um, uh, the first thing that came to mind when you discuss it, Clara, is that um, I suppose one of the th- parts of my job that I'm um, most heavily involved with is, is building an acute rehabilitation service for children with acquired brain injury in, in Temple Street. So these are children who have just had their injuries or and are in hospital um, trying to get better to go home or to the, the National Rehabilitation Hospital. And um, we obviously, these kids, we know their diagnoses and we know what their their uh, their mechanism of injuries were. Um, and there are certain standardized measures that we use um, of, uh, I suppose, their level of, of, of dependence or independence um, and of their abilities to attain certain goals. Um, but one of the things that tends to get lost, and I, I suppose it's, it's, it's one of the reasons why communication is such a, a crucial aspect of rehabilitation, um, is about those individualized, uh, I, I suppose, stories and the particular things that, that, that pertain to those families specifically. You could take two children who were hit by cars on the same day with very similar injuries and very similar acquired disabilities as a result. And on paper, they might look identical. Um, but it's only, I suppose, by having, I suppose, services that are well enough resourced and well enough briefed to know that, that their role is, is not just to meet those things that you can see on paper, but to know how each individual person and family got to where they are. Because the difference that can be, I suppose, is the difference between saying or not saying something that will completely traumatize one family or contradict something that somebody else has said. Uh, and for long admissions in, in hospital, that stuff can, can be really, really detrimental. Um, families, if they're not, if you're not working in a system that puts the family narrative at the center of it, families get the idea that we're not listening and we're not hearing them. Um, so it's very, very important to build a system System that, that, that primarily speaking has communication at its heart so that uh, those stories don't go missing. Yeah, I think that's, that, that, that speaks to something that we've we've had come up. I think Liz will correct me if I'm wrong, but that we've had come up in every episode um, so far, the importance of not only of listening, but of being also seen to listen, being it, it being clear that that, that that listening, that active listening is taking place and how to how to equip clinicians I think with with the capacity to really put it so beautifully invite them in, invite people into the silence um I think is is a really is something that requires huge consideration and is 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 it's it's really important to think through how we can do that and one of the things that we're interested in in mind reading is how humanities methods can do that and a, another term that came up across the board was uncertainty and living with uncertainty, living with multiplicity and the, the fact that none of these are the right answer, but the right answer isn't what you're looking for. It's figuring out how to balance the multiple possible right answers that there were. So Maria, I wondered if, if you might sort of say something particularly, I was interested in your your work with the, the therapists um, especially. Yeah, just one thing, Claire, I'd say that the, that language um, is very much Jerome's language when he talks about he actually talks about the, the clearing as a space that he wants to open up where people stammer, people who stammer and people who are non-stammers can come in and experience just clear, clear up space outside of our privileging of uh, fluency and certain forms of time and to be and to be with them. So um, his work is really a testament to how important the language is that you use, because just by talking about a clearing, it's just such a rich type of image. It invites us in in sort of so many ways and yeah no I think so that idea of um you were thinking about the work with the the therapists 
in particular, Claire? In, in, and, in, in general, really, but just how you'd how you'd respond to the the same question. How do we how do we not systematize exactly? But it's it's a really interesting part. I mean, one way I suppose one thing I'm thinking about is at the uh, conference, one of the therapists, uh, Mary O'Dwyer, her presentation was actually a collaboration with her client. It was very clear this was not a case history. This was not an expert coming in and using um, an individual who stammered as a test case or as an illustration. This was absolutely a non-hierarchical collaborative approach. So what they both talked about, the therapist reflected on her practice, how she changed as a therapist over the years, how her work with this client had shifted her sense, what he brought to her through his expertise, and then most of the of that presentation was the person who stammered. Um, I suppose telling their story, it was a narrative type of therapy, um, and it was very much most of the time was for him. Yeah. So he had he had he had control of the circumstances of coming there sure. with the therapist he'd established, the power sharing that was there. Um, and it was really interesting, you know, how they talked about what had developed from their relationship not what he had been taught, yes. but what they both learned from that relationship. And I know I suppose another way, maybe thinking of the therapists who are working with children and with uh, adolescents, what what, er, what Erwin and what Liz were saying about the camps, both Fiona and um, M- M- Mary work very much with the Dream Camp series, which brings um, young children and adolescents who stammer together. And again, it's, it's this balancing maybe of what they share with their individual sense of their stammer. And it's very much about, I think so much of, of the experience is peer experience. Um, and again, I'm not sufficiently familiar with it to speak to it, but I, the sense I get from it is that an enormous part of it is feeling, not feeling alone, that there's um, a normatizing, that use the word in a different sense, that this isn't just a difference. This, this is difference in diversity, but it's shared. Yeah. There are lots of people like you um, and that sense of maybe being um, othered or isolated is very much changed by the, uh, com- the, uh, the communality of other children and adolescents who both share your experience but have different perspectives on it too. And again, Jonathan Linklater's work with the Irish Stammering Association as well works with adolescents through drama. And there was just one other thing I was thinking, Claire, that one of the things that the group working in cultural representation, what they asked the therapist was, when you invite people to tell their story, do you give them prompts? Yeah. Is there a template here? And, it, you know, it, it was very interesting because it wasn't saying this is wrong. You know, we obviously use metaphors. Metaphors can be really enabling. But maybe to get to suggest that therapists reflect on the way in which they might be guiding and shaping sure. that narrative. So there, I've no quick answers to that, but it, for me it was very interesting for somebody who works in a narrative. When they hear narrative therapy, they're thinking, okay, well, who's, who's yeah. shaping this narrative? Are there prompts here that are leading it in particular ways? I think what you said, Maria, really kind of highlights one of the central questions that, again, that we keep coming back to, and it's something that both yourself and Deirdre mentioned in your own stories about disclosure. And we, we can't... You know, the, the the challenge is we can't sort of say, well, you know, Deirdre, here, will you come and talk to every doctor in the country, please, about your experience of disclosure and, you know, in your copious free time? How do we 
generalize or make available that narrative and there are questions of of power and availability and and guiding yeah i I suppose i'm just really struck by you know again just talking to to, to people about this and their kind of experience of of disclosure and trying to kind of generalize it a, a bit but really good listening skills you know really really active listening and you know in kind of gp training and that just that that focus on 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 really good level of of listening skills i think are, are is so important you know and and on the kind of the other side of that we have talked to just talked about you know how difficult it is to convey your own story you really are only getting across as i say you know, 10% if you like of, of what you want to get across, which does bring us, I think, to the, the use of kind of, you know, literature, you know, social media and so on, just in really supporting people to, to do that. And I know I, you know, when I get frustrated, as I say, with the warrior narrative and the bravery and so on, go back to people like Jenny Diskey, who writes in such an articulate way about this and the kind of the, the anger, I suppose, that's jumping off the, uh, the page. Um, I suppose that those kind of, of sources are, are really helpful for people. And, you know, just even to give somebody that book would be great. But there is definitely a kind of a, a sense of powerlessness, I think, sometimes among people with disabilities in, in just the, the challenge of trying to communicate full reality of, of their lives and, you know, not helped by the fact that people just don't feel listened to or seen, I think, you know. Well, Hemingway would agree with you on the iceberg, uh, the iceberg idea there. And I, I mean, I wonder, is that is that one of the ways that we can that we can help scaffold those listening skills is, is to sort of to to engage and to try and to try and promote the kind of close reading, the sub the, the analysis of subtext and structure. That is that is what we you know, what we do in, in, in literature, because it's what's becoming really clear from everybody's contribution is that listening is as important as speaking. We've talked a lot about the language that we use, but also that silent space, that clearing idea is, is it's becoming really clear that that's equally important. Speaking of listening, you've been wanting to come in for, for a while, Liz Barrett. I was just really thinking about that, that dichotomy because we're kind of talking about two different things. We're talking about lived experience and how do we find ways and frameworks and maybe models where people can feel engaged. And then the, the separate thing is, how do we train professionals working in these areas? So they're, you know, and sometimes we kind of mix up the two. So the first one about the idea of how do we model this or what kind of creative ways can we find that scaffold people who, who need that as they go through systems. And I was thinking about um, things like the water sports inclusion games, which bring people together and empower them, but also which allows volunteers and students who are participating as volunteers in the games that allows them to gain experience uh, in parallel with families. So they're there just as Erwin was saying um, with his experience in Australia, you know, that people are gaining experience on the ground in real life and getting to know young people and families as they engage in an initiative like that and how powerful that is, you know. But not every student is going to be able to, to do that. So what do we do next? And I was thinking about social prescribing, actually, as Deirdre was was talking, the idea that actually there are social ventures we can engage with and community partners to scaffold some of this. So I was thinking about Breathe Magic, which is a project in the UK. Erwin might know about this. It's a project for young people with cerebral palsy to provide intensive OT and physiotherapy treatment. But it's provided in the context of Magic Camp. So you go to Magic Camp 
where you have intensive physio and OT and input over a couple of days with a group of other children and families. And at the end of the week, you put on a magic show where you show how much you've, how many new skills you've gained because you learn the magic tricks by using physiotherapy and OT methods to do that. How creative is that? You know, and the outcomes from it are fantastic. And, you know, it's been economically evaluated, but also how much more acceptable and how much more young person centered. Mm. And I wonder when, you know, when services are really busy and as Erwin said, sometimes we're trying to shoehorn things into services that aren't individual centered. Do we have the creative space to think about options like that? if social prescribing and arts and medicine are kind of a place to think about those sorts of initiatives. I love that term, social prescribing. And Erwin, something that you said really, really struck me when you were talking about the camp in Australia, you you see these children navigating obstacles that would never, ever come up in a clinical context. And actually that are the most, that are probably the most important to their kind of day-to-day experience. And so that idea of the creative space um, and Marie, I think this ties in with the work that, that you were that you were doing, bringing together the clinical and the creative to find ways to, to promote that creative space, both in the context of clinicians and, and for and for patients and people living with diagnoses. So kind of bringing together the clinical and the holistic, the creative and fostering that space across the board seems to be a really, a really important thing that's that's emerging one thing as well that that was mentioned a couple of times that maybe that maybe now is the time um a few of you mentioned the fact that covid has given a lot of people who don't live with a disability a taste of what it's like to to be restricted in in your to have obstacles placed in your way for the good of you know for for health reasons for for public health and, and personal health reasons so perhaps now is the time to, to start thinking about, to start radically, let's just radically rethink the health system because it's not like you guys are busy or anything, you know. <laughs> Is there a moment here that we can start kind of finding new ways to think about what a health service can do? Not to be too ambitious about it. I would defer to the clinicians on this one. I think if it would if it wasn't going to be now, you'd wonder when it would ever, would ever be um, like the most cataclysmic of things you could think of in terms of the way we think about this and as was like you know there were there were two things about covid that sort of emphasized sort of the lived experience of people with disabilities one of them was the actual disability that people acquired from yeah. having covid and from from not being able to participate in their lives the, the way they would have had before the, and the, the, the second obviously being the restrictions placed by for public health measures but if, if we could all remember what we were thinking certainly what we were thinking in hospitals right back at the start and looking at all the awful scenes from italy of not enough ventilators to go around and there were um you know, there were emergency uh, frameworks being drawn up for what we would do if we had to ration healthcare and there wasn't enough for, for people there. And, and, and obviously, quite separately, there was a document that was drawn up that completely excluded people from disabilities from it, which is a whole other kettle of fish. Um, but the interesting thing that happened is suddenly you had the entire country aware of the situation of, well, like, what do you mean there might not be medical care for me? Uh, which is a very common experience for people with disabilities and, and, and which is kind of uh blithely tolerated by everybody else uh is the thing so i thought i i had i had hoped that perhaps it might open some eyes uh, i don't know if it has but i i do agree it is an opportunity or at least it should be 
There is definitely this sort of hierarchy in medicine and it's always hard to define and dilute it. And it's kind of a very hidden curriculum, I suppose, in a way in medical school. But I suppose it is a little bit of reflective of, of societal constructs and societal stigma around health. OK, and I suppose in a way, never before have people been so aware of the impact of physical health on mental health and vice versa. So everyone out in the world now is aware of the impact of an illness like COVID on, on everyone's mental health and on everyone's abilities to engage in day-to-day, you know, civic life. So there's never been a time like this where people haven't have been so conscious of the impact literally day-to-day of physical health on well-being and vice versa. So I think it's really an important opportunity to, ta- to change the narrative around stigma yeah. and the interface between physical and mental health. So I think there's a real opportunity, but I think we have to engage around that as a society. And I think it's very hard to ask patient advocates and experts by experience to do that all the time. So I think that's where we, the professional groups and the humanities groups need to support patient advocates to make sure that lived experience and patient voices are at the centre of all of those societal changes. We need to empower people so that we can support a a societal shift around the duality of kind of physical and mental health. Um, Yeah, and I absolutely agree with Erwin. This is is a a good time to think about that. Eric, can I just pick up on on a couple of things there? First of all, we were saying earlier about kind of the role, if you like, of the the expert by experience and I suppose awareness raising is, is great, but... We all need to move beyond that and you need to really find your, you know, your allies, I suppose, in, in these arenas who will kind of take up cudgels on, on your behalf. Because I, I think people do get exhausted, you know. But I was really struck as well in, in almost a kind of a hierarchical issue in relation to disabilities and invisible disabilities. And it even arose in the context of, of disclosure because a, a couple of people I encountered had, you know, both say, say a disease like, like, for example, multiple cirrhosis, whatever, but also had other invisible disabilities, for example, you know, mental health issues or um, autistic uh, issues or ADHD. And they all said they were more than happy to kind of disclose and discuss like the physical issues, but were much more sensitive about disclosing mental health issues, whatever. And they really felt that that was still much more stigmatised. So I suppose not all invisible disabilities even are created in, you know, this. so I was really fascinated by, by that because it's another layer of complexity as if it wasn't complex enough. I'm really listening to colleagues here on the panel here at the front line here of advocating and, and, and working particularly with uh, children. But I'm just worried in speech and language uh, therapy, the resources for that have been so uh, decimated in years. I know colleagues who report such long waiting lists and stammering is only a small part of their remit as speech and language uh, therapists. So those things happened when the economy was in a better shape than it's going to be as we come out of this recession. I think the challenge coming out of this recession and my worry is that there will be a big gulf between hopefully a change in attitude, Mm -hmm. all the reasons we're talking about a change in uh, values and what we value in terms of ourselves as citizens and as a community, and then the economic story. Unless there's a huge change in how we advocate, unless there's a critical mass of people who can have political action on the streets. I hear what people are saying. This is should be 
a turning point, but we are coming up against hard-nosed economic types of facts that will be used to stymie this. And what makes me very suspicious of them is that those facts are used even when the economy was was doing well. Yeah. You know, people were still told that there wasn't funding. So I get it. Kind of comes down to a tension between narratives. On the one hand, there is scope to change. There is scope. There's transformative scope. There's an opportunity. There's will. But the competing narrative is where is the money coming from? I think that that's there's a, a, a constant and ongoing central tension between. I mean, Erwin, you pointed out earlier the the sort of the systemic issues of how you would like to practice medicine and how medicine forces you, how the system sort of forces you into particular particular steps. It's a really interesting point that Maria makes that that we've been told time and time and time again that there isn't money for this and there isn't money for that. Like what we're talking about is providing for children to have their basic rights met or for, and for adults with disabilities to have their basic rights met. And the reason why the powers that be are comfortable saying that we don't have money for this is because they have in their minds separated one group of people from another. And what we need to do, at least amongst people who are working at the forefront and advocating for that, is to constantly hold up a mirror to the fact that that is a false distinction and that disability issues are not some separate category of thing, but in fact, it's everybody's business. You you cannot say that we're, we're not going to provide for rights because these people have disabilities, because in fact, all you're saying is that there's a category of, of citizen about whom we care less. And I suppose as, as long as people call elected officials out on that, I, I think we can hold our heads up reasonably high that we're doing our bit. But it, it is a huge challenge. It's a huge challenge because that kind of attitude, the children with disabilities, that we expect them to wait for things that other children don't wait for anymore, that is now hard baked into society, into societal attitudes and it will take a long time to bake them out. But it's as good a time as any. We can we can start with the language. Maria, you wanted to come in there. Well, just to finish off, it's uh, in some ways a, um, a quick point. I mean, it's but it actually follows on from what Erwin's saying, you know, how could cultural narratives support these kinds of changes? And I think one of the things that we talked about um, in the Metaphoric Stance Numbers group was how radical it would be to have a narrative in which uh, stammering or disability was just one aspect of the character's self. There's still space for narratives that focus on certain points of disability and inform people. But where are the narratives where a character has a disability and it's just part yeah. of the plot. It's one plot line, one thread. And I think the divisions that Erwin's talking about, the divisions between disabled and non-disabled can be broken or perhaps challenged in those cultural forms. I mean, I was thinking, even there's so few examples, but um, Silent Witness, the yeah. television program has Liz Carbridge has played the forensic scientist in a wheelchair. Um, and she's, very, she's spoken very strongly about the importance of that, the importance that that her disability wasn't the dominant note in terms of how her character was written. It seems a small point, but since the disability takes a smaller role in some ways, but a more important one in just saying, closing down those dichotomies and showing our disabilities as part of the richer, complex part of who of who we are, ebbing and flowing through, through our lives. So visibility in both creative and cultural representations as well as in advocacy forms i think working working together sounds like the way forward tall order <laughs> um but that sounds like a that sounds like a good place to to wind up so i just want to thank our panelists again um we had deirdre o'connor erwin gill maria stewart myself claire hayes brady and elizabeth barrett 
So thank you so much. <laughs>